0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Now, admittedly, this is not a typical Advent passage. Uh, But as you've heard me say before, there's a real sense in which any passage can be an Advent passage, because Advent is that time of year when we remember Jesus coming into the world for the purpose, not of being served, but of serving and giving his life as the ransom for many. Jesus came, as the angel told Joseph, to save his people from their sins. And every passage of the Scriptures highlights the significance of that work. And so, in a very real sense, every passage of Scripture is an Advent passage. But here, Hebrews 10 does this even more clearly than many other passages. Because in the last paragraph of chapter 9, the the paragraph which we looked at last Sunday... The author actually mentions Jesus appearing three times. First, he, he mentions his appearing at the end of the age, which we saw last Sunday is a, is a reference to his being born in Bethlehem. Jesus came at the end of the age. He came in the fullness of time, as Paul puts it, to give his life as the ransom price of his people's redemption. He came to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself the author says. And so he has Jesus coming in mind, and he's looking forward to his coming again, because you'll remember at the very end of that paragraph, he says, because he has done this, because he has come once to put away sin, when he comes again, it will not be to deal with sin, but rather it will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so in this Advent season, we look back to Jesus' first coming, and we long with eager anticipation for his coming again, and that is exactly what is on the author's mind as he writes Hebrews chapter 10. In these verses, as we will see over the course of the next few weeks, the author is expounding for us the significance of Jesus' coming the first time, even as he waits with eager expectation for his coming again so let us read these verses together with Advent in our mind, remembering that here we see the purpose of His appearing. Let us read these verses together. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. This is the very Word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin." That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before You now, humbly asking for Your Spirit to be at work among us this morning, to be at work in us, opening our minds and our hearts to receive Your words, to understand it, to love it, to submit to it, to obey it. Father, renew our minds and transform our lives through the power of your word here this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The climax of this passage, the the point towards which the whole thing is driving, is stated for us in verse 10. Look again at what the author says. He, He writes, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through the offering of of Jesus' body as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, we have been sanctified. Past tense, completed action. We have been sanctified. Now, it's significant to note that in the very next paragraph, verses 11 through 14, the, the verses which we will look at next Sunday, The author uses that same word, sanctify, but in the the present tense, he says that we are being sanctified, ongoing action. And so there is a sense in which our sanctification is an ongoing work, a a, a yet completed work, a a work that, that still has work to do. But there is also a sense, and it is important for us to see it, in which our sanctification is complete, in which we have been sanctified, in which we have been made holy definitively and and finally in the sight of God. That through Jesus' offering of Himself, our sanctification has been accomplished, completed. And it is that significance that I want us to meditate upon this morning. This morning, I want us to see our sanctification as completed in the offering of Christ to God of Himself on our behalf. So let's see how the author gets there. He, he begins in, in the first paragraph, verses one through four, reiterating a point that he has already made a, a number of times. He, he writes, "For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near." As I said, this is a point that the the author has been banging on since he first mentioned the sacrifices in chapter 9. He has been reminding the Hebrews again and again and again that the Old Testament sacrifices were a mere shadow. Think about what that means. Think about a shadow. A shadow has the shape of the object that casts it, but it has no true substance in itself. It, It paints a picture of what is needed But it is not the thing itself. Rather, it points us to something greater. It it, it causes our heart to long for the fulfillment. And he says that the the law, that is the the sacrifices that were given in the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament regulations for worship that he has been talking about, the entire sacrificial system, it was a shadow of the good things to come. But those good things, the the, the good things that have come, the better sacrifices that were required, they are found only in Christ. He is the substance. He is the sacrifice that was required. He is the fulfillment of, of all that the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to. Only His body and blood can make perfect the conscience of those who draw near. The Old Testament sacrifices could never do that. For as the author says in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to truly cleanse our conscience from the guilt of our sin. It is impossible for the the blood of bulls and goats to to accomplish our sanctification, to, to fit us. For the presence of God. Remember Isaiah's response when he found himself suddenly in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, the one proclaimed holy, holy, holy by the circling angels. In the presence of a holy God, he cried, Woe is me, I am undone. Why? For he knew himself to be unclean, he knew himself to be. A sinner, he knew himself to be unfit for the presence of God. He could not stand in the presence of the one who is a consuming fire. It would have been his destruction. And so he cries out, woe is me. It would be the same for us if we were brought into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. It would be the same for us if we were brought into the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy One. For we are unclean. We are defiled by sin. And God is a God who cannot simply overlook sin. That's not the way that we often conceive of Him in today's world. We we emphasize God's love. We emphasize God's mercy. And God is love. God is mercy. But because God is a God of love and mercy, because God is a good God in pure essence, it is because of His goodness that He cannot overlook sin. We, We know this intuitively. We know that a judge who overlooks evil is not a good judge. In fact, we consider it to be an evil in itself when a judge simply overlooks evil. We know that that human judges must judge righteously. They must deal with evil as evil if our society is to exist with any measure of shalom, any measure of, of true righteousness and peace. How much more then must the God of the universe judge rightly? Must How much more must the, the judge of all the universe hate sin and, and deal with it justly if he is going to establish his shalom on earth? You see, it is God's hatred of sin that undergirds our hope of heaven. If God simply tolerated sin, if he simply overlooked evil, there this world would be as good as it gets. There would be no hope of a new heavens and a new earth. For God would not hate sin enough to eradicate it, to to deal with it decisively and, and finally. And so it is a good thing that God hates sin. It is a good thing that His wrath is kindled by sin. It is a good thing that He will deal with it decisively once and for all at the end of the age. But of course it is also a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing that He deals with sin. Because we are sinners. We are defiled by sin. We are under the wrath of God towards sin. And so, like Isaiah, in the presence of a holy God, we can only cry, woe is me, I am undone. And it was exactly that dilemma that the Old Testament sacrificial system was given to address. The book of Leviticus, which which gives us the, the regulations for Old Testament worship, was written explicitly to answer the question of how can a sinful people dwell in the midst of a holy God? How is that possible? How can that be safe? And the Old Testament sacrifices showed us That sin had to be cleansed. That guilt had to be dealt with. That the sinner had to be washed. And that only blood was sufficient to accomplish that cleansing. But it was only a shadow. It was only a form. It was only a a picture of what was needed. Because the blood of bulls and goats could not possibly... Deal with human sin. We see their ineffectiveness even in their repetition, the author says. Notice what he says in verse 2. If those Old Testament sacrifices had actually been effective, they would have ceased to have been offered. The very fact that they had to be offered again and again, year after year, is proof that they were not actually accomplishing What they were showing was necessary. They were a reminder of sin, the author says. They were a reminder that sin is our problem. They were a reminder that it is sin that separates us from God. They were a reminder that that until our sin is dealt with, we are excluded from His presence. But they could not actually cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They could not make perfect those who draw near. And it was the ineffectiveness of those, un- those Old Testament sacrifices that helps us to see the purpose of Jesus' coming, that helps us to hear the good news of Christmas. Why do we celebrate Advent? Why do we look forward to Christmas? Why is it good news that, that Jesus came? It's good news that he came because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is what the author means in in verse 5 when he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, think about that word consequently, as a consequence of what I've just said, as a consequence of of the blood of bulls and goats being ineffective, as as a consequence of, of it being impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, as a consequence of that, Christ came into the world with Psalm 40 on his lips. And look at the words of Psalm 40. This, this psalm that the author puts into the mouth of Christ at His incarnation. He came into the world saying, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Psalm 40 is a psalm of David, a psalm of the king, remembering the the salvation that God has, has brought to him and remembering what it is that God requires of his people. And he says that what God requires of his people is not sacrifices and offerings. Now that's a surprising statement a surprising statement because the sacrifices and the offerings were actually mandated by God Himself. This is what the author means down in verse 8 when he says, These are offered according to the law. The author is not suggesting that, that, that God did not delight in the Old Testament sacrifices because He never asked for them or because He never required them of His people. Of course He required them. Of course He, he mandated them. They are offered according to His law But they were not given as a form of righteousness in themselves. They were not given as a a substitute of what God required of man. From the beginning, what God required of man was obedience. This is what David tells us in, in Psalm 51 when he says that the sacrifices that God desires are not bulls and goats, but rather a broken and contrite heart. It's what Samuel meant when he rebuked. Saul, for offering the sacrifices himself, saying, do you really think that offering sacrifices is an appropriate substitute for obedience? That's what Micah the prophet means when he says, listen, God is not going to be pleased even with a thousand goats, but rather what he requires of you is to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The sacrificial system was never meant to be a substitute for obedience. What God requires of His people is faithfulness, faithful obedience to His Word. And so when God, when Jesus comes, He he comes not to offer sacrifices, as if that were the righteousness that God required, but rather He comes to do the Father's will. And interestingly, the text that the author quotes here says, a body you have prepared for me. If you flip open your Bibles to Psalm 40, you will find that the the text of our ESV translation is actually a little bit different than that. It doesn't say a body you have prepared for me, but rather an ear you have given me. The reason for the difference is that the the ESV translation is based upon the the original Hebrew text, while the the author here is is quoting a a Greek translation known as the Septuagint. And in the transition from from Greek to Hebrew, the idiom changes. To have God give you an ear is is for God to give you the instrument of obedience. Obedience. In the Hebrew, a mind to to hear, to truly hear, is to obey. This is why some people hear without hearing. If you simply hear what your parents say, but you don't do it, you haven't really heard in the Hebrew mind. And so to give one an ear to hear is to to give them the instrument of obedience. And the same is true in the Greek mind. The, The body that has been prepared is the body... That is the instrument of obedience. The body that is offered to God as a living sacrifice, according to Paul in in Romans chapter 12. And so while the language is different, the thought is precisely the same. The author is saying, you have not required of me, you have not desired for me sacrifices and offerings, but rather you have given me an ear, you have given me a body that I might obey you. But of course, when you put these words into the mouth of Christ, they take on a special significance. Because it is giving the eternal Son a body that Christmas is all about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God from all eternity. The second person of the Trinity dwelt with God in perfect, loving relationship. But as John tells us in his prologue, that Word became flesh. He incarnated. He took on a, a human nature. He was born of a woman. God gave him a body. Why? He gave him a body that he might do his will. Behold, he says, I have come to do your will, O God. You see, Jesus came not to participate in the Old Testament sacrificial system, but rather to replace it. to to render it obsolete by His own perfect obedience, by doing the will of His Father perfectly and to the end, even to the point of death on a cross. And because Jesus came to do the Father's will, because He fulfilled His Father's will perfectly from beginning to end, His offering of Himself is the better sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could not redeem the life of a man. But the offering of the Lamb of God, without blemish or spot, like us in every way except without sin, His offering up of Himself was sufficient. And so Jesus came, He says, to replace the first with the last to replace the offering up of bulls and goats with the once for all offering up of Himself. This is what Advent is all about. This is why the coming of the Son is long expected. This is why the coming of the Son is good news. Because by that will, by Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the will of God, even to the point of death on the cross, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. Yes, there is a sense in which we are still being sanctified, but we are even now holy. Set apart for God. Fit for fellowship with Him for all eternity. That which is holy is that which can dwell in the presence of God without fear. That which is holy is that which can serve His purposes without defilement. That which is holy is that which gets to dwell with God in the coming kingdom forever and ever world. Without end. And the author wants you to see this morning that that is you. In Christ, washed in his blood, you are holy. You are set apart to God. You are fit for fellowship with him in the coming kingdom. We don't always feel this, we struggle. To believe it. In fact, I am am sure that there are some here this morning, even now, who see only their sin, who see only their failure, who, who know only the ways that they have fallen short of the glory of God and struggle to believe that God could ever love them, that God could ever accept them, that God could ever receive them into His kingdom. You feel disqualified. You have a consciousness of sin. You know your guilt. And let me say, you're not wrong. You are guilty. You are justly deserving of God's condemnation. In yourself, you have earned death. In yourself, you are justly condemned, an object of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what do you do with that guilt? The world will tell you to, to accept yourself, to think more positively about yourself, to, to know that to err is, is human. But such platitudes will never calm a restless conscience. Such platitudes cannot deal with Sin. They are not sufficient to reconcile you to a holy God. If you come into His presence with those platitudes, you will still, like Isaiah, be undone. Your only hope is a better sacrifice. Your only hope is the sacrifice of the One who did the will of God even to the very end. His blood, His body alone are able to deal with sin. His body, His blood alone are able to take away guilt. His body, His blood alone are able to make perfect the conscience of the one who draws near. So if you are here this morning and you have never received and rested upon Him, I implore you to do so even now. Look to Christ for your salvation. Look to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you are a believer struggling to believe, look to Jesus. Implore Him to open your eyes. Implore Him to help your unbelief. Implore Him to remind you of all that is yours in Christ. Ask Him to again assure you that in Him, through the offering of His body, you have been sanctified. Because it is the holiness that is yours in Christ that is your hope of glory. And it is that hope that is your only refuge and place of rest. And because such a refuge is ours, because such a place of hope is ours, because we have been sanctified, That is why we call this Good News. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Father God, we come to You now humbly asking for Your grace. Humbly asking for eyes to see Jesus and to see in Him our sanctification. Father, may we turn our eyes away from our sin, not because it is insignificant, not because it does not matter, but because it has been dealt with once and for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. Teach us to rest in Him, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.